Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of The End of Sport. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm speaking to you from Durham, North Carolina, and I'm joined by my friend Derek Silva from lovely London, Ontario. Derek, how are you doing? Ah, I'm great. You know, still sticking around in isolation, keeping my physical distance, uh, but but socially connected to people. So I'm I'm doing awesome. It's great to talk to you today, Nathan. All right. Uh, by the way, that was a little bit of a cheap shot. I went to Ontario. Just that flash. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Shots fired. Uh, a little bit. A little bit. Although, um, if, I don't know if you've been to Long Point uh, in Lake Erie, which is not too far from where you are, but like there's some spectacular scenery. You, you got to go to Long Point. Oh, my God. It's beautiful. Really Long beautiful. Point. I'll, put it, I'll put it on the list. The partner, I imagine, will be more down with that than me. She okay, loves well, going anywhere. Beautiful beach, bird watching. It's lovely stuff. Um, Anyway, for all of you who, who tuned into this podcast for a bit of a <laughs> tourist update on southern, southwestern Ontario, uh, there you go. Uh, but but um, sticking to the topic at hand here, which is sort of sport and pandemic sport, that's what we're going to talk to you about today. In our first episode, we kind of tried to introduce ourselves to you. Uh, and today we want to dig more into sort of issues that are really striking us when it comes to this incredible moment of crisis uh, and change in the world of sport. But before we get to all that, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping for the show. And the first thing, the number one thing I really want to say is how uh, grateful I am. I think we both are to all the folks who have reached out to us uh, to tell us that they enjoy listening to the show. They were excited about it. It means uh, an incredible amount. I really mean that. Uh, it's incredibly motivating to continue doing this work, which we're incredibly excited to do. Um, but it's wonderful to hear that people are interested in the project as well. So thank you so much for that. And if you want to get in touch with us in the future, uh, probably the best way, the way that we're both going to respond most quickly uh, is on Twitter. And you can find us at, at end of sport pod. Um, and you can also find us on Instagram, same handle at end of sport pod. And you can also find us by email um, at, uh, in this case, the end of sport. What is it, Derek? Wait, the end of sport. What? The end of sport podcast. <laughs> what sport. on uh, email? Uh, yeah, the end of sport at gmail.com. Basically, what we're interested in is any feedback you have about the show, uh, things you like, things you don't like, and also people you'd love to hear from on the show. Uh, because you know we're, we're excited to bring people conversations. Hopefully, that you'd like to hear more of. Um, and so we'd like to bring on folks who you're interested in hearing from. Uh, now. We'd love to hear from um, Megan Rapino, Colin Kaepernick, uh, Justin Jackson, San Diego Chargers. Definitely want to hear from Justin Jackson. You folks have contact info for some of these um, esteemed individuals. We'd also love to hear that from you uh, because some, some folks are a little bit harder to get in touch with than others. Um, but we are incredibly excited with the guests we have coming up in the very near future, uh, including one athlete who we're thrilled to be speaking with. And I'm not going to tip off who that is, but I'm hoping that that's going to be our very next show. We also have coming up probably in maybe a, around a week, a little more than a week. Uh, we're both incredibly excited to be speaking to Jules Boykoff about the Olympics. So I'm not going to talk about the Olympics today, but the Olympics are coming up in the near future. We, other have, we also have interviews with other incredible folks like uh, Shereen Ahmed, Andrew Stoughton, and others coming up down the pipeline. So we are incredibly excited about where this show is heading. Now, Derek, I got to tell you that uh, I made a terrible mistake uh, after our last show, which is that I listened to myself. Um, I listened to the recording. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I am glad I do not do that for when I teach, 
because I would be in a state of paralysis. I don't know how athletes watch game film. Can't understand how they do it. It's incredible. What a gift. What like incredible sense of like the self-esteem that they must have to put themselves through that and to have a coach screaming at them about their errors. I mean, like no doubt they're seeing them clear as day because when I listened to myself, it was an absolutely excruciating experience. Let me tell you. Yeah, the first time, the first couple of times I listened to myself on on podcasts or on audio recording, I almost wanted to vomit. So I fully, <laughs> I fully get that. I think the difference between us and professional athletes is that, like, professional athletes are doing some wildly, um, you know, inhumane things often with their with their bodies, which we'll we'll talk about um, in a in a different light, I'm sure. Um, but they're doing some just absolutely unbelievable things. Whereas like you and I are probably doing some pretty mundane things overall. That's true. That's actually even, that's <laughs> even more dispiriting when you put it that way, to be honest. Um, but I, I have to agree with you on that. Um, the last thing I want to mention is that we're going to try to include um, links in the show notes for if we're ever bringing up stories, um, things we've worked on, anything like that, just so you can kind of follow up if you're interested get the sourcing and if you ever find that they are paywalled um then i strongly encourage you um to get in touch with us and ask for yeah, a non-paywalled link because we are happy to pass on anything to you and speaking of paywalls we have absolutely no intention of paywalling this podcast moving forward in the future um, frankly as academics we are all too familiar with having our work paywalled and i'm just thrilled that my uncompensated labor will actually be released to the world um, in this case. So um, yeah. More than five uh, readers. Yeah, exactly. Or, in our case, more than five listeners, hopefully. Hopefully, exactly. All right, so thanks uh, for bearing with us there on that uh, housekeeping stuff. And now, Derek, I want to get into it. So at this yeah. point, um, I want to start more generally. You know, I think we'll go later into some more specifics in terms of particular sports and so forth, which have had... Um, Salient events that I want to hit on because they're so striking in this moment. But just generally, I think this is an opportunity for us to take stock of what's been happening in sport all along in the world of high performance sport um, and where we're going. So, what what are you seeing? Part of um, what's happening right now. So, like the whole point of today's episode is to talk about like sport during this pandemic and sport during this like time of crisis. And like to me it's really this kind of double-edged sword, if you will. Like it's on the one hand, as a fan, I kind of miss it, right? Um, I don't know if you feel the same. I kind, I kind of miss being able to like be like, you know, to feel like pacified after my long day of work um, and turning on the television and seeing some sort of sport, whether it be hockey, basketball, whatever sport, I'll, I'll, I'll almost watch. I'll watch a spelling bee, really, if it, if it were. Um, and I have um, several times. I love that spelling bee on ESPN. You're, you um, are so ESPN's like, ideal viewer. I, I, I quite literally am. I watch darts. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll almost like turn anything on. So I, on the one hand, like I miss it as this like pacifying force. But on the other hand, I like, I, I really view it as this kind of opportunity now that there's no sport happening maybe this is our opportunity to like reimagine sport maybe this right now is we don't understand it yet because so many things are happening around us but maybe this right now 
is our moment to actually reimagine what sport might look like if we weren't, we were to no longer center athletic labor. Um, sadly, I think that that may not be the case. And we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit um, later on. But like, what might sport look like if we were to care less about revenue and more about bringing people together as seemingly because we can't be together right now? But maybe if we were to push back on looking at sport as a source of, source of revenue and sport more as bringing people together, maybe that might make us question or reimagine what sport looks like. And maybe like we can start thinking about some alternative futures to what sport actually looks like. And we're seeing some recent pushback against things like the NCAA. Um, but maybe this is the moment right now, like right during this pandemic during this crisis this is the time to reimagine what sport could be in the future and to me it has both of those i miss it and i want to completely reimagine what it looks like in the future what about you yeah no listen i hear you completely and what what you were saying makes me think of is actually the moment we live uh, in the united states a few weeks ago when we had the sim the sort of debate if they were debates on the stimulus bill, right, uh, for the economy. And what, what we were talking about there is this, this moment where we had this sense on the one hand um, from the left uh, of opportunity in much the same way you're describing. Like, what if we can use this moment to imagine a renewed social safety net, right? Like a renewed state that is actually serving the need of people in the United States. And so we had talked about, you know, universal basic income was coming up as an option, which we, you know, in Canada, you've seen it realized a little bit in some European countries, much more robustly in the United States, not at all, essentially. Um, but it was still nonetheless something that we were thinking about, right? Like, let's actually figure out way, new ways to um, sustain working people in the context of a crisis and possibly through that reimagine, right, a kind of new deal. And of course, we very much had the language, the Green New Deal, et cetera, emerging out of that. And yet, what we ended up seeing was the kind of because of this panic uh, over the state of the economy, right? This need to rush and to do something as quickly as humanly possible because of this desperation, the economy was shutting down. And really what that was just ended up amounting to was um, uh, it allowed uh, corporations to sort of seize the state all the more, right? And receive this massive bailout at the expense of working people who got nothing. Uh, and it was very much Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, right, in that sense. Um, and I'm not trying to turn this into a politics podcast, but what I'm trying to say is actually, that to me, the analogy to sport here is that, like you, and by the way, when we talked on uh, the East is a podcast a couple weeks ago, um, I was the one pushing to reimagine sport in a certain sense um, and reimagine the aesthetics of sport uh, or whatever else, right, how we watch sport, all these other things. And what I'm seeing now in these intervening couple of weeks is actually, unfortunately, this panic rush back to sport, right? In much the same way we had to rush back to the economy. And that rush back to sport, I fear, is also going to serve the same kinds of corporate interests. And so I got a couple of things I want to, I want to share with you here. One of them is um, I want to look at uh, a recent story in ESPN where we had some quotes from the esteemed Anthony Fauci. Anthony Fauci, who is kind of like the American hero in this moment, uh, in this 
he's sort of standing up in, in some circles the hero in some circles the complete enemy right well yes yeah, so those are the circles that are uh, not not circles that i travel in <laughs> so much um but so but it's fascinating to me uh, as we kind of bring together this sort of economic pandemic and sport picture what Fauci yeah. says okay he says yeah. quote there's a way of reopening sport nobody comes to the stadium put the players in big hotels wherever you want to play Keep them very well surveilled, have them tested every single week and make sure they don't wind up infecting each other or their family and just let them play the season out. And the story goes on. Fauci noted to Hamby his interest in being able to watch the World Series champion, Washington Nationals. I want to see them play again, he said. End quote. Wait, 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 wait. What? That's right. Anthony Fauci is telling us we should sequester players, surveil them, restart sport, so he can watch his favorite club, the Washington National. And make sure that they're tested every single week and make sure that they don't uh, wind up infecting others, like each other or their family. Yep. And just, like, let them play the season out. Exactly what he said. That's a verbatim quote right there. Yep. Um, so I, I bring that up because uh, what we're seeing here is that this person who's supposedly the medical expert, right, the one that's safeguarding us as a collective in the United States, the one that we've put our kind of collective well-being in his hands, literally, to save us from the president, is at the same time willing, it seems, to sacrifice professional athletes so that literally he specifically can get the emotional gratification he needs in this moment of crisis. And that brings me to the, the main kind of point that this is sort of my overarching perspective on sport and also the thing that I can't help see everywhere in this pandemic moment. And again, and that, if, if people are interested, that East is a podcast um, uh, conversation Derek and I had a couple of weeks ago. You might want to check it out if you haven't had a chance to. And I won't belabor the same point, but in that, in that specific episode, I went on at length kind of about my theoretical perspective on sports specifically and how I understand it as a kind of form of social reproduction, et cetera. I'm not going to go into that technically right now in the way I did there, but I will repeat just a couple of the most important points because I think they will be very relevant for our discussion moving forward today and beyond. The sacrifice or potential sacrifice of the athlete and the athlete's body as a fundamental structural feature of high-performance spectator sport. And that is because the athlete has to be willing to treat sport as if it has life or death stake in order for the fan to care enough to invest not just their money, but their actual identity in the games that they are watching, right? So they become something much more than games. And through that, fans are able to produce communities with each other through the body, through the vessel that is the athlete's body, where they can invest their meaning in that vessel. And then when the athlete is injured, it validates the meaning that they've invested. And they in turn can then sort of sacrifice that individual athlete and displace their meaning then to the body of yet another athlete and on and on and on. So the athlete's sort of a fundamental purpose for the fans, right? But at the end of the day, there isn't a profound regard for the humanity or the well-being of the athlete. And so, of course, that's the kind of conversation I want to have with some of the folks we're going to have on the show moving forward in the future, how they kind of see that as well. But I see that here in what Fauci is saying, because he cannot divorce himself from his own identity as a fan, right, in this moment. And he's literally, despite the fact that his job is to safeguard the well-being of people, somehow always athletes 
don't count as human beings. My big issue with what most of our professional sports leagues are doing is they're all considering this same bullshit. Mm-hmm. They're all considering this same like sequestered. Um, let's put all of our athletes, by the way, not talking really to the athletes about whether or not they want to do this. Let's put our athletes in one location and let's have no fans there and let's let the games begin. Right? Like the EPL is considering this. The Bundesliga is considering this. Serie A is, is considering this. MLB is considering this. The NBA, the NHL, all of these big major sports organizations or or leagues are considering this idea of like sequestered sport. And the one thing that I have yet to hear about now, I have no idea what's happening behind the scenes, but one thing I've yet to hear about is whether or not they're consulting with athlete athlete groups, whether or not this is like safe for them or whether or not they feel safe or whether or not they're being consulted and what this means for them. And this to me is like the one of the root issues here and one of like the the one of the issues that we've talked about in this in this podcast about centering around how we as a, as a society tend to downplay the rights of athletic laborers as if they're some sort of property, as if they're some sort of like group that like they're paid well and therefore they deserve less fewer rights than the rest of us. And to me, I think it's a cultural, that's a social thing. It's, a, it's an issue that we have as, as a society or as societies with our athletic laborers. Yes, I think that's exactly it. And I love how you frame that as an issue about consultation, right? And, and can we actually hear athletes' voices in uh, these debates, these discussions, right? Um, and, and, so- and how do we how do we hear those voices? Yeah. Like if LeBron James were, I like I am I am willing to recognize that there are athletes with particular power and there are athletes with less relative power, right? Like if LeBron James comes out, and I remember him coming out before the lockdown happened. Now, like, oh, if the if the NBA wants to play um, in front of fans, like I won't be there. Well, yeah, LeBron James can say that. Yeah. And LeBron James can do that, but like not everyone else can. So like even in in that in terms of that internal hierarchy of sport, even within like the the preeminent sporting leagues that we have, not everyone has the relative power of a LeBron James, right? There is that like fifteenth man, like that fifteenth person on that team that may like quite literally like one day be with a job and one day be contingent labor or is like, even right now it's very much contingent labor. So like, I I think that these questions all get muddied up in this discussion of like, let's just put them back on. We'll put them all in Arizona. They'll be in four hotels and everyone will get tested all the time. They'll be heavily surveilled and they'll play for our desires because we need it as a country. Yes. Yes, and I, I want to get to Arizona in a moment. Um, before I do that, I, all of this stuff reminded me of something that um, that emerged in my book uh, and my project interviewing hockey players, right? And so there was one player I talked to who I, I um, anonymized as Curtis, 
Okay, so he's, he's Curtis in the book. Uh, and this, by the way, what I'm about to describe here is excerpted uh, at the LA Review of Books, and I'll link that in the show notes. So you can actually see the kind of longer version if you're interested in this story. Um, that excerpt is basically just the narrative I'm referring to here. But what he, take, he took me through um, in that passage is this harrowing experience he had with a devastating career-ending knee injury, right? And it wasn't just like the pain and the suffering of the injury itself, but the way in which he was basically abused by the entire sort of structure of professional hockey from the general managers, coaches, doctors, agents. It was like every player in this sort of drama um, or every actor in this drama had a role to play in terms of dehumanizing him and undermining his interests and well-being, despite the fact, and what was so tragic to me, despite the fact that this individual was a passionate hockey fan himself. Like he told me he loved the game so much that if kids wanted him to go to like their birthday parties, he was there because he remembered when he was a kid and like what it meant to talk to a professional athlete, right? Like how much that meant to him. And he felt it so profoundly, like he loved nothing more than hockey and being a professional hockey player. So he was so committed to the project, right? In that way where he completely internalized the logic he's supposed to internalize. And yet, and I'm just going to read you a brief passage here. But this is what he told me at the very end of this, taking me through the saga of how all of it soured because of the Harmony's experience. He said, if I had to go through it again, I don't know that much would have changed, to be honest with you. Because I think guys are still going through it today. I think it's the same thing. You can't rock the boat. You can't speak out if you don't have proof or evidence or something, or if you're being told something by the trainers and doctors. You just have to follow suit. You're not a human being. You're a number. You're a product. You're an asset as long as you can perform. If you can't perform, then you're a liability, and they'll drop you. And I mean, I see that everywhere in sports. I see that in this moment, right? I mean, I see that with this idea of sequestering these baseball players in Arizona. And let's let's talk a little bit about the Arizona bullshit because uh, it's really it's unreal to me. Uh, so from an ESPN story on April seventh, we have quote. Players, coaching staffs, and other essential personnel would be sequestered at local hotels where they would live in relative isolation and travel only to and from the stadium, sources said. Um, players would have to be separated from their families for up to 4.5, four and a half months, okay, according to that plan. Let's be clear on that. That's part of this plan. So we had Fauci talking about, like, possibly infecting your families, but don't worry, Major League Baseball has that covered. You'll just be isolating families. Um, and then we go, so the story goes on, quote, while the possibility of a player or staff member testing positive for the coronavirus exists, even in a secure setting, officials do not believe that a positive test alone would necessarily be caused to quarantine an entire team or shut down the season, sources said. Oh, why, why would it? Uh, the plan could include teams carrying significantly expanded roster to account for the possibility of players testing positive despite the isolation, as well as to counteract the heat in Phoenix, which could grow problematic during the summer. Sources said, end quote. Um, there's a lot in that <laughs> to unpack, if you ask me. Um, I mean, they are literally, the, all I could hear, this, it's, not exa- it's not a perfect analogy, but all I'm thinking when I'm reading that is like Marx's reserve army of labor, right? This idea that like capitalism relies on this surplus mass of human capital that can always be drawn upon, right? Because that deflates wages, it means that we don't have to worry about working conditions, etc. Right? There's always someone else. And like Major League Baseball is telling us that's what they're doing, right? 
And of course, minor league players are supposed to feel grateful for this because we know how viciously exploited they have been. And hopefully we're going to get a chance to talk to that with someone who has experienced it firsthand in a future episode. I mean, there's vicious exploitation in the minor leagues. The possibility of getting maybe a, like a major league something type contract or whatever is really appealing for people. But like, what does that mean for their lives? Separated from family, exposed to disease, like consciously exposed to disease. They're expecting people to get like, okay. So I don't, I don't even think we have to have like an academic conversation about this. I just think we have to have like a, like a conversation about humanity here. And like, so, so what we're proposing here, what's being proposed here and like, like, let's get real. This is not what's happening yet. Like uh, this is, this is a plan. We have to call it what it is, but this is a plan that quite literally puts people at very large risk, not only of actually contracting a, a disease that is very, that could be potentially deadly, that is deadly, that is killing several thousands of people um, across this continent and, and the world in general. Not only like, are we willing to put these people at that at risk of that? We're also willing to put them at this like social risk of massive isolation and like take them away from families and expect that like, they're just going to like be okay with that. And they're going to just like work hard for a variety of people. So yes, Marxism is there. And like, yeah, we can think of this as like, okay, this like ever, um, this always turning wheel of workers, which like, I think major league baseball and minor league baseball is particularly um involved in that like system of like there's always labor there um but just like just take it to a humanistic level that is some fucked up shit like that is some terrible um approach to labor or a, a terrible approach to bringing back a, a, a sport so that all of us can like get through this quarantine because really that's what we're talking about we're talking about for all of us to be able to be entertained again like the the economy of major league baseball doesn't fuel the global economy it's not a significant um flame of the global economy yes it's there but you but the things that are actually like fuels to the global economy center much more around natural resources. That's a completely different um, conversation. I'm not suggesting that's a good thing. I'm just simply saying that like major league baseball is relatively insignificant when it comes to the global economy. So why is there this massive push to get these things going? Well, it's because you need to fuel everyone else. You need to fuel, you need to provide everyone else with their source of entertainment. So like, if you're listening to this and you're like thinking, oh yeah, like I would love to like watch basketball or baseball again, like under those conditions, seriously, that's what we're going to consider. That's the, that's where we're going to go as a society to me that like make that we should be questioning ourselves, not so much the administrators, we should also be questioning them, but we should simultaneously be questioning ourselves and the administrators making this plan come to fruition if it ever does. Yes, I, that's, I think that's 
totally fair. I do want to hit back on the administrators uh, and kind of capital's interest in this again for a moment because it also reminds me of like the cruise ship industry lobbying for a bailout, right? Like <laughs> these least um, essential parts of society, like entirely leisure-based parts of society. Like, yes, they are outlets for pleasure or whatever and consumption in all these various ways. But at the end of the day, the stakes here are Major League Baseball as uh, a corporate entity is worried about its own survival, right? They're worried about their own survival and they need to find a revenue stream in order to stave off the, the creditors and whatnot, right? And so they're willing to put people in harm's way. And it's astounding to me that, you know, we, we literally see it. Anthony Fauci himself is basically willing to speak about them as an essential service in this context. Um, it, it is absolutely incredible to me. Now, you also asked earlier for, uh, like, what do players have to say, right? And I have to say, like, I'm usually very down on ESPN, down on the corporate media in terms of how they are generally just serving the interest. They're part of this general kind of, you know, sport industrial complex, sport media industrial complex, et cetera. Um, it's all part of the same project that ultimately just chews up, in my estimation, like the body of these laborers. But... ESPN did some marvelous reporting recently where they actually went and did anonymous interviews with some players, Major League Baseball players. And I love that these interviews are anonymous, right? Because this is one of those situations where it is so dangerous for the players to speak out publicly, right? Because of the backlash yeah. they'll face from their owners, from fans, from anyone, right? I mean, that's, that's just what we've been talking about. How all of these forces are aligning against them in this moment, right? And demanding something of them. So it's very difficult to speak back to that. The anonymity piece here is, is wonderful because it really affords them with the freedom to tell the truth, right, about how they feel. So let's just hear a few of these passages. Um, and again, I'll, I'll link all of this in the show notes. We have an American League starting pitcher. Quote, I want us to be part of the solution, not the problem. I miss baseball and I want to play baseball. When I think about being isolated for four to five months without being able to see my family, I don't think that would go through at all, personally. I think that was very much the initial thought on it, and the media has blown things up a lot because we don't have sports, and this is the idea of having sports. I feel for guys who have young children. I feel for guys whose wives are pregnant right now. What do you do? I don't want to be putting myself in a position where you could go and infect someone or get infected. We have coaches, staff, people around us who are older and could be truly affected by this. So, I mean, there you go, Derek. Like, that, there's the humanity you were looking for, right? I mean. Yeah. Just telling the truth about what's at stake. Yeah. We have another one here. We have a pitcher and union rep. Goes, quote, look, I'm not saying this playing baseball wouldn't be a positive. I love baseball. I want to play baseball. But if it's not safe for us to be anywhere off the field except for a hotel, then it's probably not safe to play games. I get it. I want to play too. You can want whatever you want. But that doesn't mean it can happen. I mean, like these people should be running the United States, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the, all right, the go whole, ahead. The whole thing here, here is that like getting people in a room together, and like you can say the field is not the room. I'm not referring to the actual field. Like I think overall, most people would agree. Like the relative risk of transmission during a game may actually be kind of low. Although if somebody's infected, I would disagree completely. Um, but like, it's everything that goes into a game, 
these people have to be in the same room as a number of other people who are transient and coming and going in a variety of ways throughout the entire day. So it's like, it, it, it sends a message to these people that their lives are worth less than everyone else, but also simultaneously sends a message to everyone else that we are willing to put people at risk for entertainment. And therefore this isn't as big of an issue as it should be. Right? Like if we are to go say we're to open this up in June, and we're gonna have sports going, they're gonna be on. What sort of message does that send when uh, some of our government officials and and some, it may not be in the US, but it may be other jurisdictions are saying, no, you still have to stay home. You still have to do pr like practice physical distancing because it's important. And then you turn on the TV and you see it's not happening there. So there are some consequences of you even putting this on television because people will stop taking guidance seriously. And there is no vaccine right now. There is likely no vaccine for the next year of our lives at the very minimum. There is no solution to this until that vaccine comes or until a large proportion of our population is immune. And that's a How big does question that happen? Mark. That immunity piece is a big question mark right now too. There are only a couple, of course, but there are only a couple of ways that this can happen. So either 60 to 70% of the population become infected and therefore have an immunity, whether or not that's asymptomatic. I'm not an epidemiologist, no. I'm not a, a medical doctor, but 60, 60 to 70% of the population become infected, whether or not they know it or not. And then you have like herd immunity or you have a vaccine. There's no other way that that happens. And if you're an epidemiologist and you want to correct me on that, uh, Derek Krim, uh, you can email me. But th those are the only two ways. So if there's no vaccine, then you have to assume that the only other way that that can happen is herd immunity. And the only way to figure that out is with serology, like tests and figuring out whether people have developed the antibodies. And like, we are nowhere near that. We are nowhere near having those tests. We, we don't even have enough tests to be able to test, like to test people who we think like might actually have it. So we're talking about testing people for antibodies. It's not happening. So when we think about putting these people at risk, these athletes at risk, we are sending some really bad messages, not just to, to our athletic laborers, but also to people everywhere that like this is less of a this is less important than just running sport. And to me I think that sends some really bad messages that could result in a second wave and could result in like a lot of people dying unnecessarily. So I think there's actually like a public health issue here as well as a moral issue towards our the ways in which we treat athletic laborers. Yeah, uh that's a great point. Because it reminds me of, um, of what you have said, uh, I don't know if it was in the last show or the uh, the one on the, the podcast, but uh, you had pointed out that the athletes had a huge role to play in making people take this seriously in the first place, 
right? So first, I think this is we, the the first time people I think actually realized that this was an issue was the day the NBA canceled games. Exactly, exactly. That's what I had in mind. I mean, and um, I've seen that uh, I, I, that comes up again. That's what people remember as the beginning of this. I was having a conversation with a, a close friend last night, saying sort of like that. That was the moment where for him it became serious, right? And and uh, he was in Toronto, but that was exactly the same for me in Durham. Like. You know, the universities were acting, things like that. But, like, it wasn't clear that the societies were going to shut down here completely until that happened. Uh, and so I think, you know, your point is exceptionally well taken. If we take the modeling of athletes, you know, we always have this idea, our, you know, our athletes role models. But there's this way in which, you know, because of the significance of sport in our popular culture, people... Whether if sport's there, if sport's not there, people are thinking about sport, people are paying attention to sport. And so it does, it signposts what can and cannot be done, right? And what we should be paying attention to and what we should be caring about. And so I, I think I'm even less of an <laughs> epidemiologist than you are probably, but I think it's pretty fair to say that it would send an incredibly detrimental message. And that's why for me, I have to keep coming back to it. What the hell is Anthony Fauci doing saying that? That is the person who is supposed to be setting the best possible example right now. Um, and I, I don't really think that people are picking up on that, right? Like, they're just kind of like, yeah, it's true. Like, the guy's got our best interest, but like, we also need part of, you know what it is? Part of our public health. Like, we've got a social distance or physical distance. Um, yes. But we also need to look after our emotional health. And by the way, I'm, not, I'm taking this seriously. Like, from a mental health standpoint, isolation, et cetera, is a critical issue. I'm not belittling that or taking that lightly. But what I mean is in a more ridiculous way, like our emotional health as sports fans, we're missing sport, right? And so somehow like we're going to cater to people's emotional health by simultaneously making physical distance, i.e. the random fan or citizen. And at the same time, that individual can have their sports too on the TV and that will get them through the physical distancing. And so guess what? It's that same logic as we're seeing from these absolutely disgusting Republican politicians and others who are saying like 3% of the population, eh, we can do without that, that portion. They've lived long lives for the most part already, blah, 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 right? It's the same kind of thing here. Like, let's sacrifice the athletes, right? But the rest of us will be better served. Right? I think this, this like, I've been struggling with this because like on, on the one hand, I agree with, with certain things that certain groups of people are saying and and i'll make this more clear i should do that actually up front so on the one hand i'm hearing this rhetoric that like yes we need to like worry about getting people back together and like back to work because that is important to mental health Mm -hmm. that is important to social health and public health and i agree completely but i think one of the things i disagree with is when we start conflating that like social connection and being back in like actual um, physical distance of one another with economic well-being is where I like I I feel uncomfortable conflating those two mm-hmm. it's not about getting our economy back together because that will lead to better public health it's actually about getting like humans together and conversing which those two things cannot happen like they're not mutually exclusive, but like the discussions I'm hearing around me are much more centered on like, let's get the economy back because that is a public health issue. And to me as a critical sociologist, I am like very like, no, no, 
like the economy is not a public health issue. We should not treat it as a public health issue. Um, or at least we should rethink about how we treat it as a public health issue. Because yes, like a, a completely destroyed economy will have several negative consequences on public health. But like, I am willing to like defer to public health officials or public health um, scholars to like help me through that process. I am not willing to defer to cronies. I am not willing to like defer to like politicians who have made their name on like um, passing like tax breaks for their buddies. Like that's, those aren't the people that I'm willing to listen to on that front. So when I hear these like conversations about, oh, we need to bring sport back because it will like support our like mental health. It's like, I can, I can get on board with a lot of that actually, but not when it's an economic argument. Exactly. Not when it's like filtered through this idea that we need to get our country back working. We do not. Nathan, yeah. I'll tell you right now, it's April 17th. We do not need our country's back operating for another month and a half at the very least. Why? Because a lot of people will die if we do it. This argument for the economy, it's for this reified thing, the economy, right? Um, but that's, that's honestly, that's liberal bullshit because what is the economy? The economy is people. It's people working. That's what the economy is. It's like human beings doing work that produces things that we can then have and share. And yes, we have convoluted that through like finance capital, et cetera, right? But what I'm trying to say is at the end of the day, human bodies are not able to survive. There is no economy because the economy is the human bodies who are doing work to produce things, make things happen in the world, right? So this just speaks to exactly what you're saying. You can't put the economy first because the economy is predicated on the humans who are healthy and alive to work in the economy. You need to have those humans to have an economy. So that argument to put the economy first, it's all just bullshit. It's playing games with a stock market. It's the Dow Jones springing up and down because people say stupid stuff publicly, right? It's bullshit, and there's no hope for us uh, if that's what we're prioritizing. I mean, I don't have a lot of hope for us. That's the question. Um, but, but I agree with you, and, and so we see, bringing it back to sport, right, we see ultimately, like, this incredible willingness to compromise the bodies in the, in the sport industry, I should say, right? We see this incredible willingness to sacrifice those working bodies as part of this project because we don't actually care about them. But at the end of the day, right, if all those people are laying down for the coronavirus, um, we're also not going to actually have commodity spectacle to watch that people want to see, right? So, I mean, it's not even a good plan from that standpoint. Let's get to the other, so, because in a certain sense, like, okay, you, you made this point. You know, the, the, the so-called nonsense arguments about, like, oh, we got the super rich athletes and we got the, like, you know, we never talk about the fact that we have these professional athletes who are not nearly as well remunerated, et cetera, right? So that we have all of those different kind of like pseudo class divisions within sport itself. And we started with baseball, a site where there's like a lot of money being made by some people, definitely not by others. All right, but we're still talking about baseball. We're talking about like some of, some of our listeners, maybe like these are still really privileged people you're talking about here. I think that they can like cope with 4.5 months without their family so they can make a lot of money. There's so many more people. I can think of like professional lacrosse I can think of people like I have family, extended family that are so-called professional lacrosse players that like, they don't make enough to support 
a family off of what about like professional rugby or what about CFL Canadian football league players um, who don't like, yes, some make 200, 250, 500 K a year, but you know what? Most of them have to work two or three jobs. Um, so what, what do we do about those athletes or what do we do about like um, semi-professional athletes? What do we do about our unpaid labor athletic labor pool ding 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 ding, yeah there we go (laughs) all of those people get lost so yeah naturally i think you and i will always naturally go to our unpaid um athletic or completely unpaid um athletic labor but like there are a lot of people who fall through the gaps as well there are a lot of people like that we think oh wow they're a professional athlete well like they're a professional athlete insofar as they have to show up to work every single day and make their money. Yes, they might actually make some decent money when they're playing every single day. What happens when they're not? And you, you, read, you read my mind. You know me too well because I want to talk to you right now about college sports in the United States, the NCAA. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> surprise. So listen, they, they've been supplying me with some some real jewels. Um, let's hear from Oklahoma State men's football coach Mike Gundy. Quote, the NCAA, the presidents of the universities, the Power Five conference commissioners, the athletic directors need to be meeting right now. And we need to start coming up with answers. In my opinion, we need to bring our players back. They are 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22 years old, and they are healthy. And they have the ability to fight the virus off. If that is true, get out of here. And we sequester them and continue. Because, Derek, Mike, I'm speaking right to you because we need to run money through the state of Oklahoma. End quote. Can we sequester like all NCAA coaches? <laughs> just in a room? Just just let, them, let them figure it out for themselves. <laughs> it could be a reality TV show. You can put them on. And just watch them do it. It could be like Big Brother, Survivor, all these other reality shows and just watch them go. Yeah, that would be that that I would pay to see. That would satisfy some of my emotional needs, I think, right there. <laughs> but you know what thrilled me? Because one of our themes of today is players talking back. Perpetual theme for us. Andrew Baselli, um, an offensive lineman at Florida State University, got the coronavirus. And he spoke mm-hmm. publicly about it very consciously, understanding the discourse of Gundy and others, um, like our favorite Clemson head coach who had other bits to say. Um, Boselli said, quote, a day after my test, an unpleasant process in and of itself, I woke up feeling like I had been hit by a bus. I'm thankful to say that my family and I have recovered from our fight with the coronavirus, but I also want everyone to know just how hard it was. I spent days feeling miserable. And my dad, strong, healthy, 47-year-old man, and by the way, former NFL star, with no underlying health conditions, spent three days in the intensive care unit. I promise, even if you're young and healthy, you do not want this virus. Uh, I I have so much admiration for him coming out and saying that. I think that, again, what we're seeing again and again is athletes are understanding and taking very seriously what is at stake here. And it is powerful when they speak out because they do have a platform and they are saying the things like Andrew Vaselli right there is saying something way more potent than what Dr. Fauci said in a, to start yeah. our podcast. Uh, I, I just have to commend him. Yeah. And, and like considering the, the relative power that, that he has, 
like I I also have to commend him. And I've I've spoken with like a number of people who have had this virus, and like this is no joke. I think there's this there's there is this like underlying. I would say it's not the popular opinion, but mm-hmm. an opinion that like this only affects older people. Yeah. Yes, it might affect disproportionately older people. Yes, a hundred percent. I will agree with that, and like the data suggests that completely. But like this is no joke. This makes your life living hell for two, three, four weeks, and us any any human who is willing to subject other humans to that for the gain of themselves or for the gain of something for anything that has to do with themselves i question everything that that human stands for and perhaps that's the reason why we have this podcast right now like the there needs to be someone to push back on those people who are will, who are doing that. Amen. Yeah, beautifully said. Um, so on a similar theme, um, just kind of thinking through what's happening in this college football universe, right? So the big fear that Gandhi is articulating is this idea that we're not going to have a college football, right? And there is a lot of fear mm-hmm. in American universities about that question right now. And a recent USA Today story revealed that, in fact, at public only, by the way, I want everyone to be clear, I'm not talking about the entire um, football uh, football bowl subdivision um, of the NCAA right now. I'm talking about strictly Power 5 public universities. Okay? So that's, those are big names, but it's not everything. Yeah. All right. At those institutions, if we include the savings they will have from not operating football, and that means like, you know, the food they prepare, there's a lot of savings if they're not like actually outlaying for some of the costs that go along with the season. Okay. So I'm not giving, I'm not cherry picking my figures here. I am giving you actually the least powerful figure, right? That so we have a $3.3 billion net loss for those power five public universities, not including the economic impact towns, college football towns, right? Um, small U.S. college town, if we don't have this season. That is an enormous number that will profoundly affect universities. And of course, the way that is being taken up in the popular media is basically like, my Gundy, let's rush those kids back out there because we can't afford those losses. But here's my take on this issue. What the hell does it say about our institutional imbrication with the sacrifice of young people that we have this industry in the first Right. Yes, that we have to rely on that to fuel our towns, exactly. our college towns, that we have to fuel our administrations, that we have to fuel our universities. That is a that's a condemnation on university administration since the nineteen fifties. Since changes that have happened all the way from Walter Byers to today. Like all the way from the the very idea that we should have collegiate sport in the first place this is a condemnation of that this moment the pandemic highlights everything that is wrong with the very foundation that is college sport period end of story mic drop that's it that's exactly it i want to remind people about the boston university cte studies Okay, and we can talk about chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, you know, neither of us are physicians, again, as we've said over and over again. Um, but there's some pretty clear evidence out there that um, 
This is a devastating condition that comes from repeated head impact, right? We're not necessarily talking in this case about traumatic brain injuries, i.e. concussions, but even sub-concussive contact. And in football, this is why people really, I mean, it's really important to think about a sport like football. And also, by the way, soccer, right, with heading the ball. We're talking about when you constantly batter your head, i.e. as offensive linemen do with defensive linemen on every single play of the game. And watch a football game. Watch. Watch in slow motion with no sound and just watch those heads. I mean, I just want to exhort people to do that because it is a painful experience, actually, as a viewer. So to try to strip that of the context of the football game that we're accustomed to and just watch the physical violence, it's brutal. It's every play and it's practice, right? And that's the stuff that leads to CTE. And CTE leads to memory loss. It leads to um, heightened aggression. It leads to uh, suicidal thoughts and actions. It leads to sluggish behavior. I mean, it leads to potentially uh, drug use as a kind of coping mechanism. There's a huge slew of potential symptomatic responses to CTE. And what Boston University's researchers, and these are folks who have accumulated a very large sample of brains of deceased players because it is not possible to diagnose CTE in the living. A really important point at, at present, uh, with present scientific conditions. Um, They've accumulated an incredible sample of brains of former football players and others. And so this is, this is obviously constantly unfolding data. But what they have, I just want to reveal, like to, to point to a couple of the findings that are very well known at this point, but for people who are not as familiar. One, in a, in a 2017 study they published, they revealed that in a sample of about 100, like 111 brains of former NFL players, 110 had CTE. Okay, in that sample. They also had over 50 college football players who did not go on to play professional football. 90% of those brains had CT. And a more recent study with an even larger sample size reveals that every 2.6 years of participation in football doubles CT. Right? And the reason I'm saying all this right now is because here we have this pandemic and we're talking about coronavirus and it matters and it's, it's disgusting to think about subjecting these young people who are unpaid. And by the way, I, we should always point out massively disproportionately racialized, right? That's a huge part of this political economy. Can I, can I also point out one other like overlap that I see here as a, mm -hmm. as a criminologist? Yeah. Um, when we think about the people that we're putting at risk, um, and, and right now, yes, we're talking about athletic laborers and we're talking about athletes and the people that we are as society willing to put at risk we can't ignore that another group that we're putting at a heightened risk are our incarcerated populations yeah. and these run along very similar lines yeah. um in terms of uh demographics right Even who more are we willing Yes. So who are we willing to put resources towards our old, our, our, our older communities in long-term care facilities? And I'm not suggesting we shouldn't, but that is where we see a lot of resources actually going, at least in Canada. I'm not as certain in the United States, but we're seeing a lot of money going into our long-term care facilities. We're seeing absolutely nothing going into our incarcerated populations and we know that the rates of infection of this this disease are massive in our federal prisons so when we're talking about genocidal. the people that, yeah, when we when we talk about the people that we are willing to put at risk 
This is what we're talking about. This is the reality. This is how we should put our head on a swivel and see the issues. This is why we should pay attention to sport because we can see the same issues existing in sport as exist out there in society as if it's something different. Exactly. So I just wanted to like highlight that like basically I want us all to think about who we're willing to put at risk and who we're not willing to put at risk, right? That's right. The death rate the death rate in the United States from coronavirus at this point. I know those statistics in front of me, but it is massively disproportionately being inflicted upon African Americans specifically. And it has everything to do with who is doing these so-called essential service jobs. They are essential jobs. I say so-called because they're not treated like essential jobs, right? They are the most low-paid, precarious, exploitative jobs that are in fact essential to our society. And those are the people who are getting no resources to cope with this incredible crisis. So they are on the front lines, uh, saving the society as a whole, right? Allowing the society to continue functioning with their labor. And yet they are the ones who are then being sacrificed to this disease, right? And it is disproportionately racialized there, disproportionately racialized in the prisons, and it is disproportionately racialized when it comes to athletic labor. And this is what structural racism means, right? These things are not an accident. They're not a coincidence. They're not a game of identity politics or representational politics. They're about who has to do what work because of the very structure of society. This is why you know, talk about myself as a Marxist, but it's about talking about a racialized system, capitalism, right? Because the racialization of people enables the hyper-exploitation of certain bodies over others because some are dehumanized and others are seen as human beings who should never be subject to those kind of conditions, i.e. at those nursing homes, for instance, that you're talking about, right? If we're talking about older white people who need to be saved because they are still people on some level, right? And by the way, who is doing the work of caring for those without the resources that they need, right? There's, of course, yeah. directly connected question here. Um, so that's, that's great. I'm, I'm really glad that you uh, made that intervention, Derek. So just circling back around, because we were talking about CTE, right? And, uh, and Boston University, I was saying that like, every 2.6 years of participation doubles the chances of contracting CTE. So what I was saying with that is that football itself is an inherently sacrificial activity. It is the most popular sport in the United States, right? It's the most popular form of culture in the United States. The literal university system in the United States, like that's what these stories are telling us. That's what these football, these, these athletic directors, these university presidents are telling us. They literally need college football for their institutions to survive. And college yeah. football, in the best case, non-pandemic circumstance, literally subjects human beings to brain injury that will be devastating for their long-term prospects. And they're not even being paid. As if we need another reason to boycott <laughs> the NCAA FBS system. Um, as if, right? That's it. That's exactly it. Um, so, you know, that might be. So, it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so one of like we are always like it's as if it's not clear in episode two. Nathan and I are pretty staunch critics of athletic exploitation, particularly when you marry that exploitation with massive amounts of violence. Is that safe to say about yeah. our perspective, Nathan? I think that's right. Yes. I think that's exactly right. It's a, and, yeah, go ahead. That's a, like, we're always going to take that sort of net, critical approach. So 
one of my questions for us, like mm -hmm. to brainstorm, one of the things I think that this podcast might be useful for is thinking through some alternative futures that might come out of this like downtime in sport. We will, I can safely say, if there is no pandemic 10 years from now, like in our lifetime, this may be the only time in our lifetime where there is no sport. So this may be our only opportunity to actually reimagine a world without sport or a world with sport different. So how can we do that? Can we leave our like listeners with, with some sort of words to, to think about some alternative futures for the sporting world? Boy, um, this is, this is the trouble for me. Um, I can postulate sort of what I would like to see. I am not a hopeful person. <laughs> even as you were talking, even as you were talking, I was thinking, boy, 10 years, that's, that sounds good. I'm thinking a lot about climate change. Even, even if we're not talking about a pandemic, my long-term yeah. thinking is constantly kind of foreclosing in on itself, imagining kind of what other crises are going to make it possible for so-called life as usual, as normal, returning. So I think that, that Possibly normal is crisis after crisis, um, kind of from now on. But that's. I, I think you're like safe to assume that. I'm seeing all these like photos of airplanes traveling all over the world with like half filled. Like, if that's not like a, a condemnation on like climate or or if that's not raising issues of climate change, I don't really know what is. Exactly. Exactly. So look, there's that. Then there's the question of like the power of capital to kind of shape our whole social set of social relations. Again, I feel like I had felt some, even some hope in this U S political cycle that we were kind of pushing back on that in certain ways. And we're now in a moment, like we got the Biden, the Trump thing looming that is not filling me with the warm and fuzzy feelings I was kind of hoping for. Um, so again, like it's, as I hear the rhetoric in these sports leagues, it's hard for me to believe that we're moving towards the, what you're articulating here. I know like we all need and want some kind of hopeful possibility. And I get that. Um, it's hard for me, but the vanishing point, if I, if I put it in those terms, right, the kind of vanishing point for me, if I will, was to imagine something. It is because I do, I do think that there is support outside of capitalist or beyond it, uh, better than it. And that I think is ultimately, a more from a spectator there's there's two aspects right there's the there's the participation support piece and then there's the um the representation of viewership support when it comes to spectating sport i think what we want to ultimately see is a more aesthetic approach to sport spectatorship right because it is beautiful fun pleasurable to watch human bodies in motion in incredible ways doing incredible feats that's what you were talking about at the beginning right like Talking for a podcast is not an incredible feat, but like the things that any athlete in any sport does, those are incredible feats. And that is something we can watch without this sort of rabid investment of our identities in winning, losing, um, imagine communities, all of that other stuff, right? Like we can have that sporting experience without the stuff that ultimately requires a sacrifice. Because if it's an aesthetic version of sport, we don't want people to get hurt for what happens, right? Like, we don't want the artist's body to be sacrificed. We shouldn't want that. So I think that's one part of it. And the other part is, I do think that, like, sport played, I'll put it this way. 
from my, my own experience of sport, when I played sport, even in high school, which of course like is incredibly low level compared to what the large, larger world sport is, but for me, it seemed very important at the time. Um, it was an experience just riddled with anxiety, ultimately, because I cared so much about like winning, making mistakes, or the coach phase, right? Like I, I basically lived that entire experience of high school sport as a sort of form of terror on some level. Um, and then as I kind of matured to adult sport, which is entirely recreational, right? I mean, like literally just getting together with friends, play like softball, volleyball, soccer, or whatever, which I've done all those things, basketball. It was amazing to me. It was like being a young child again, the pleasure that came back because nothing else was at stake except for just like the being with a team of people you cared about and challenging yourselves to work together against other groups. But like at the end of the day, it didn't matter that much. So there was no sacrificial element to it. That to me is the kind of sport that is humanized. I, 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 I'm with you, but like, I'm more thinking like, in the constraints that we have in the, the structure that we have around us right now, can we reimagine sport today as if it's going to change? Like, I, I think like these, I, I'm a little bit more hopeful, I think, than you are, perhaps. Like, I'm seeing some very, 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 very <laughs> minor pushbacks. And I'm hopeful that we might actually be seeing the first true cracks in the NCAA structure right now. And I think that like some of that, the some of the evidence of that is like recent decisions of some very, very um, well-known and highly regarded high school basketball players deciding to forego the NCAA and actually going to the G League. Actually going to the developmental league, we've seen some in the past, they've gone to Italy or they've gone to China or they've gone somewhere else, but we're seeing them completely foregoing the NCAA. And this is for a very specific set of reasons. Um, The NCAA holds less power in collegiate basketball as it once did, but I'm hoping that perhaps some of this may trail into collegiate football going forward i'm hoping i'm hopeful and i think it may actually happen if people can seize the moment if people can like seize this time of no sport and be able to 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 leverage that into something better in the future but i don't know i appreciate so i'm really look i'm really looking forward to getting like athlete's perspective there because i am just an onlooker i have no idea what's happening i appreciate that perspective derek i appreciate your hope and i want to tease people uh that we will in fact be having in a very very um not too distant episode um i'm I'm hopeful we're going to have a region at a major power five university on the show speak to us about these issues and a college a men's college basketball player so those will be really interesting people to discuss this issue with. Um, so now- I left. I left this. I left this part like I. I wanted to end like kind of here for that exact reason because I kind of want to tease us out a little bit. Um, I. I. I want to present a little bit of a hopeful view because I want other people to come in and quash my hopes. And, <laughs> and like I want, to be, or at least, or maybe make me more hopeful. 
Um, and I don't think like Nathan, I, I don't want to agree on every single thing. I like, I want us to bring in alternative perspectives to be able to like give our listeners a little bit more in terms of like just you and I, the same old like Marxist approaches to sport. I want to hear from other people. And I think we have some really awesome interviews coming up with athletes, non-athletes, journalists, academics, um, a bunch of people. And I think we're really going to like provide a bunch of different perspectives on these issues. I'm excited about it, Derek. And just to close today, uh, I want to remind people that you framed yourself as a uh, Foucauldian. Uh, and for my Foucauldian friend, I have a quote for you from uh, Joshua Clover recently in Critical Inquiry, responding to Bruno Latour. Uh, and here's what Clover had to say about uh, biopolitics uh, and Foucault and so forth. He said, quote, yeah. capital, with its, with its inescapable drive to reproduce itself, is not some actor in a network equivalent to other actors, but an actual cause. We must take this fact with the utmost seriousness, that Foucault's new regime of power appears in the late 18th century, which is to say, alongside the steam engine and the Industrial Revolution, which is also to say, alongside the liftoff of anthropogenic climate change. We need to stop fucking around with theory and say, without hesitation, that capitalism, with its industrial body and crown of finance, is sovereign, that carbon emissions are the sovereign breathing, that make work and let buy must be annihilated. And there is no survival while the sovereign live. Just something for everyone to chew on. Until next time.